Chapter thirty two of the Mysteries of London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rosie. The Mysteries of London by George Reynolds. Chapter thirty two The Old Bailey. The sessions of the Central Criminal Court commenced. The street of the Old Bailey was covered with straw and the pavement in the neighbourhood of the doors of the court on one side, and of the public-houses on the other, was crowded with policemen, the touters of the barristers, and attorneys practising criminal law, and the friends of the prisoners whose trials were expected to come on that day. The press-yard, which is situated between the solid granite wall of Newgate and the courthouse, was also flooded with living waves, which rolled onwards from the street to the flight of steps leading into the gallery of the old court. In former times, prisoners who refused to plead were pressed beneath immense weights until they would consent to declare themselves guilty or not guilty. This odious punishment was inflicted in that enclosure, hence its name of the press-yard. It cannot be necessary to describe the courthouse with its dark, sombre walls and its huge ventilator at the top. Alas, the golden bowl of hope has been broken within those walls, and the knell of many a miserable wretch has been rung upon its tribunals from the lips of the judge. The street of the Old Bailey presents quite an animated appearance during the sessions, but it is horrible to reflect that numbers of the policemen who throng in that thoroughfare upon those occasions have trumped up the charges for which prisoners have been committed for trial in order to obtain a holiday, and extort from the county the expenses of attending as witnesses. At the time of which our tale treats, the sheriffs were accustomed to provide two dinners for the judges every day, one at three and the other at five o'clock, so that those who could not attend the first were enabled to take their seats at the second. Marrow puddings, beef steaks, and boiled rounds of beef invariably formed the staple commodities of these repasts, and it was the duty of the ordinary chaplains of Newgate to act as vice-presidents at both meals." This ceremony was always performed by those reverend gentlemen the ecclesiastical gourmands contrived, during sessions, to eat two dinners every day, and wash each down with a very tolerable allowance of wine. We said that the sessions commenced. On the Monday and Tuesday, the recorder in the old court, and the common sergeant in the new, tried those prisoners who were charged with minor offences. On the Wednesday, the judges upon the rota took their seats on the bench of the old court. Richard Markham's name stood first for trial upon the list on that day. He was conducted from Newgate by means of a subterraneous passage, running under the press-yard into the dock of the court. The hall was crowded to excess, for the case had produced a profound sensation. The moment Markham appeared in the dock, every eye was fixed upon him. His countenance was very pale, but his demeanour was firm. He cast one glance around, and then looked only towards the twelve men who were to decide upon his fate. Close by the dock stood Mr. Monroe. Whittingham was in the gallery. The baronet, Chichester, and Talbot lounged together near the reporter's box. The jury were sworn, and the counsel for the prosecution stated the case. He observed that the prisoner at the bar was a young man who, upon his majority, would become possessed of a considerable fortune, but that in the meantime he had no doubt fallen into bad company, for it would be proved that he was arrested by the police at a common gambling-house in the evening of the very same day on which he had committed the offence with which he was now charged. It was but natural to presume that this young man had imbibed the habit of gaming, 
and, having thereby involved himself in pecuniary embarrassments, had adopted the desperate and fatal expedient of obtaining money by means of forged banknotes, rather than communicate his situation to his guardian. Where he procured these forged notes, it was impossible to say. It would, however, be satisfactorily proved to the jury that he passed a forged note for five hundred pounds at the banking-house of Messieur Blank, and that when he was arrested a second note for fifty pounds was found upon his person. Several concurrent circumstances established the guilt of the prisoner. On the evening previous to his arrest, the prisoner dined with Sir Rupert Harborough, Mr. Chichester, and Mr. Talbot, and when these gentlemen proposed a walk after dessert, the prisoner requested them to accompany him to a common gaming-house in the quadrant. They refused, but finding him determined to visit that den, they agreed to go with him, with the friendly intention of taking care that he was not plundered of his money, he being considerably excited by the wine he had been drinking. Ere he set out, the prisoner inquired if either of his companions could change him a fifty-pound note, but neither gentleman had sufficient gold to afford the accommodation required. Now it was not fair to presume that the prisoner intended to pass off upon one of his friends the very forged fifty-pound note subsequently found upon him. On the following day the prisoner, the moment he was released from custody on the charge of being found in a common gaming-house, hurried home and ordered his servants to prepare for his immediate departure for the continent. He moreover wrote two letters, which would be read to the jury, one to a lady, and the other to his guardian, and both containing unequivocal admission of his guilt. The learned counsel then read the letters, and commented upon their contents at some length. There were several expressions, he said, which clearly tended to self-crimination. Circumstances of a very peculiar nature, and which I cannot at present explain, compel me to quit London thus abruptly. I could not have remained in London another minute with safety to myself. I conceive it to be my duty, in consequence of rumours which may shortly reach you concerning me, to inform you that I have this moment only awoke to the fearful perils of the career in which I have for some weeks past been blindly hurrying along, till at length yesterday. I am penitent, deeply penitent. Let this statement induce you to defend and protect my reputation." The last paragraph but one, which concluded so abruptly with the words, Till at length yesterday, clearly pointed to the crime with which the prisoner was now charged, and the last paragraph of all undeniably implored Mr. Monroe, the young man's guardian, to hush up the matter the moment it should reach his ears. The clerk at the banking-house, who changed the five-hundred-pound note for the prisoner, then gave his evidence. At length, Sir Rupert Harborough, was called into the witness-box, and he deposed that the prisoner had dined with him on the evening previous to his arrest, that he very pressingly solicited him, Sir Rupert, and Mr. Chichester, and Mr. Talbot, to accompany him to the gambling-house, and that he, moreover, inquired if either of them could accommodate him with change for a fifty-pound note. Mr. Chichester was called next. He stated the line of defence adopted by the prisoner at Bow Street, and positively denied having ever given the prisoner any notes to change for him. Markham's counsel cross-examined this witness with great severity. "'What are you, sir?' "'A private gentleman.' "'What are your means of subsistence?' "'I receive an allowance from my father.' "'Who is your father? Now take care, sir, how you answer that question.' "'He is a commercial man, sir.' 
Is he not a tradesman? Well, he is a tradesman, then, if you like it. Yes, I do like it. Now, upon your oath, is he not a pawnbroker in Brick Lane, Bethnal Green? He is a goldsmith in a large way of business, and lends money occasionally. Ha! complacently observed the counsel for the defense. Go on, sir, lends money occasionally. Upon real security, I suppose, added Chichester, taken considerably aback by these questions. Upon deposits. Let us give things their proper names. He lends money upon flannel petticoats, watches, flat irons, etc., observed the barrister, with withering sarcasm. But I have not done with you yet, sir. Was your father, this very respectable pawnbroker, ever elevated to the peerage? He was not, sir. Then how come you by the distinction of honourable prefix to your name? Mr. Chichester hung down his head and made no reply. The counsel for the prisoner repeated the question in a deliberate and emphatic manner. At length Mr. Chichester was fairly bullied into a humble acknowledgment that he had no right to the distinction, but that he had assumed it as a convenient West End appendage. The cross-examination then proceeded. Did you not travel under the name of Winchester? I did, in Germany. With what motive did you assume a false name? I had no particular motive. Did you not leave England in debt, and were you not afraid of your bills of exchange following you abroad? There is some truth in that, but the most honorable men are frequently involved in pecuniary difficulties. Answer my questions, sir, and make no observations. You will leave me to do that, if you please. Now, sir, tell the jury whether you were not accompanied by a valet or coachman in your German trip. I am always accustomed to travel with a domestic. A man who runs away from his creditors should have more delicacy than to waste his money in such a manner. When you were at Baden-Baden, were you not involved in some gambling transactions which compelled you to quit the Grand Duchy abruptly? I certainly had a dispute with a gentleman at cards, and I left the town next morning. Yes, and you left your clothes and your servant behind you, and your bill unpaid at the hotel? But I have since met my servant and paid him more than double the wages then due. You may stand down, sir, said the counsel for the defense, a permission of which the witness availed himself with surprising alacrity. The counsel for the prosecution now called Mr. Whittingham. The poor butler ascended the witness-box with a rueful countenance, and, after an immense amount of badgering and baiting, admitted that his young master had meditated a sudden and abrupt departure from England, the very day upon which he was arrested. In his cross-examination he declared that the motives of the journey were founded upon certain regrets which Richard entertained at having permitted himself to be led away by Messrs. Chichester and Talbot and Sir Rupert Harborough. "'And, my lords,' ejaculated the old domestic, elevating his voice, "'Master Richard is no more guilty of this here circumwention than either one of your lordships, "'but the man that did it all is that there Chichester, which bilked his Wally de Shamble, "'and that vulgar fellow Talbot, which called me a tulip.' "'This piece of eloquence was delivered with much feeling, and the judges smiled, "'for they appreciated the motives of the honest old domestic.' The officer who arrested Markham, 
proved that he found upon his person, when he searched him at Bow Street, a pocket-book containing between thirty and forty pounds in notes and gold, together with a note for fifty pounds. A clerk from the Bank of England proved that both the note for five hundred pounds changed at the bankers, and the one for fifty just alluded to, were forgeries. The case for the prosecution here closed, and the judges retired to partake of some refreshment. Markham had leisure to think over the proceedings of the morning. He was literally astounded when he contemplated the diabolical perjury committed by Sir Rupert Harborough and Mr. Chichester. But he entertained the most sanguine hope that the discredit thrown upon the character of the latter would render his testimony worthless. He shuddered when he reflected how ingeniously the counsel for the prosecution had grouped together those circumstances which told against him, and then again a ray of satisfaction animated his countenance when he remembered that his counsel would speedily show those circumstances in a new light. The judges returned, silence prevailed throughout the hall, and the prisoner's counsel rose for the defense. Richard seated himself in the dock, and prepared to listen with the greatest attention to the speech of his advocate, and Whittingham placed his hand in a curved position behind his ear, in order to assist that organ on the present important occasion. The counsel for the defense began by giving some account of the family and social position of the prisoner, who was born of parents accustomed to move in the first rank of life, and who was the heir to a fortune of no inconsiderable amount. During his minority, his guardian, who was then present, had promised to allow the prisoner six hundred pounds a year. With these pecuniary advantages, it was absurd to suppose that a young man of education, a young man whose noble and honorable feelings had been the object of remark on the part of all his friends, and who had only to express a want to his guardian in order to receive its immediate gratification, it was absurd to imagine that such an individual would enter either into a conspiracy with others, or plan by himself, for the purpose of raising money upon forged notes. No, this young man was one of a most generous and confiding disposition, and, as he had seen but little of the world, he was totally unacquainted with its wiles and artifices. Thus he was made the dupe of some designing villains at his very outset upon life." The whole history of the present transaction was to be summed up in a few words. A gang of conspirators had hit upon the desperate mode of passing forged notes in order to retrieve their ruined fortunes. Not as magnanimous as the highwayman who perils his own existence while he perpetrates a crime, these men required a tool of whom they might make use, and who could be at any time sacrificed to save them. This instrument, this scapegoat, was the prisoner at the bar. The witness, whose real name was Chichester, but who, by his own confession, had travelled on the continent under another denomination, was not a person on whom the jury could place any reliance. He had assumed a distinction to which he was by no means entitled. He had affected all the arrogance and importance of a man of rank and fashion, whereas he was the son of a pawnbroker in the refined locality of Brick Lane, Bethnal Green. Endowed with much impudence, clever in imitating the manners of his superiors, and well-versed in all the intricacies and subtleties of the world, this possessor of assumed distinctions, this swaggering imitator of a class far above him, this adventurer with fascinating conversation, ready wit, 
amusing anecdote, and fashionable attire, this rue of the present day, with jewelry about his person and gold in his pocket, allowing ever an engaging smile to play upon his lips, and professing unmitigated disgust at the slightest appearance of vulgarity in another, this individual, this Mr. Chichester, was the principal witness whom the counsel for the prosecution had brought forward but no English jury would condemn a fellow-creature upon such testimony, the testimony of one who is compelled to fly ignominiously and precipitately from Baden on account of some rascality at cards, and who left his domestic in a strange land, penniless, ignorant of the language, and surrounded by the odium which also attached itself to the name of his master. The prisoner had no motive in passing forged notes, because he was wealthy, but Mr. Chichester had a motive, because he evidently lived far beyond the means which his father could allow him. The learned counsel here related the manner in which Richard had been induced to change the larger note, and had become possessed of the smaller. He then proceeded to observe that the letters addressed to Mrs. Arlington and Mr. Monroe related to the fact that the prisoner's eyes had been suddenly opened to the characters of his associates and to the career of dissipation in which they were leading him. The phrase upon which so much stress had been laid, till at length yesterday, alluded to the suicide of a young officer which had taken place while the prisoner was at the gambling-house, whither he had been inveigled instead of inveigling others. He could not have remained in London another minute with safety to himself. And why? Because these associates, whom he had accidentally picked up, would not leave him quiet. They regularly beset him. He was penitent, and he hoped that Mr. Monroe would defend and protect his reputation. Yes, when the newspaper reports conveyed to the knowledge of that gentleman the fact that his ward had been arrested in a common gambling-house and fined for being there, the letters were written hurriedly and were ambiguous thus they were susceptible of more than one interpretation let the jury interpret them in favour of the prisoner it was better to send a dozen guilty men back again into society terrible as that evil would be than to condemn one innocent person then, with regard to the precipitate departure, the witness Whittingham had shown, in his cross-examination, that the prisoner's object was to escape from the three men whose characters were suddenly unveiled to him. It was said that the prisoner had requested those three individuals to accompany him to the gaming-house, and that they at first refused. Oh, amazing fastidiousness, especially on the part of Mr. Arthur Chichester, who had been compelled to decamp from Baden for cheating at cards. Then it was stated that the prisoner asked for change for a fifty-pound note, and it was said that he would have availed himself of that accommodation to pass a forged note. Why, he, the learned counsel, had already explained how that fifty-pound note came into the prisoner's possession, his own gold having been transferred by Mr. Chichester to Sir Rupert Harborough's writing-desk. The learned counsel concluded by asking how it happened that no other forged Bank of England notes, no copper plates to print them with, no materials for such a fraud, were found at the prisoner's house? Could it be supposed that a young man with his prospects would risk his reputation and his safety for a few hundreds of pounds? The idea was preposterous. The prisoner's counsel entered into a few minute points of the evidence which told in favor of his client, and wound up with a powerful appeal to the jury on his behalf. 
Richard followed, with an absorbing interest, the able defense made for him by his counsel, and his soul was filled with hope as each fact and argument in his favor was divested of all mystery, and lucidly exhibited to the consideration of the court. Mr. Monroe was summoned to the witness-box, and he proved the statements made by the prisoner's counsel relative to the pecuniary position of his ward. Snoggles, the ostler, followed, and very freely stated all the particulars of his late master's precipitate decampment from Baden. Thus terminated the case for the defense. The counsel of the prosecution, according to that odious right which gives the accusing party the last word in those instances where the defendant has called witnesses, rose to reply. He stated that neither the wealth nor the social position of an individual afforded a certain guarantee against crime. Besides, the law must not always be swayed by the apparent absence of motives. Because some of the most extraordinary deeds of turpitude upon record had never been traced to a source which could satisfactorily account for their origin. The perpetration was the object which the jury had to keep in view, and the use of evidence was to prove or deny that perpetration by some particular individual. A forgery had been committed, and money was obtained by the prisoner at the bar through the agency of that forgery. The defense had not attempted to deny that the prisoner was the individual who had thus obtained the money. The point to be considered was whether the prisoner knew the note to be a forged one, and he, the learned counsel, considered that an assemblage of circumstances of a most unequivocal nature stamped the prisoner with that guilt. Mr. Chichester's evidence went to show that he himself never gave any notes to the prisoner. Even if Chichester were proved to be a disreputable person, there was nothing beyond the prisoner's mere assertion, made through his counsel, to prove that he had received the two notes from Chichester. Mr. Chichester had certainly assumed another name during his German tour, but it was for the purpose of avoiding arrest in a foreign land upon bills of exchange which might have been sent from England after him. He had, moreover, assumed the distinction of honorable, a foolish vanity, but by no means a crime, for half the Englishmen who were called captain were no more captains than he, the learned counsel, was. The senior judge now summoned up the evidence to the jury, and the most profound interest was still manifested by all present in the proceedings. The learned judge occupied nearly two hours in his charge to the jury, whom he put in possession of all the points of the case which it was necessary to consider. The jury retired, and debated for a considerable time upon their verdict. This was the dread interval of suspense. Richard's countenance was deadly pale, and his lips were firmly compressed in order to prevent any sudden ebullition of feeling, a weakness to which he seemed for a moment inclined to yield. Mr. Monroe did not entertain much hope. The summing up of the judge had been unfavorable to Markham. As for Whittingham, he shook his head dolefully from time to time, and murmured, loud enough to be heard by those near him, "'Oh, Master Richard, Master Richard, who would ever have propagated an opinion that you would have been brought into such a fixture as this? It's all along of them fellers which call butlers tulips.' How singularly reckless is the mind of man with regard to the destinies of those to whom he is not connected by any ties of blood or friendship. While the jury were absent, discussing their verdict, the various barristers assembled round the table, began chattering together and laughing and telling pleasant anecdotes, as if the fate of a fellow creature was by no means compromised at that moment. 
the counsel for the prosecution who had done his duty by exerting all his talents all his energies and all his eloquence to obtain the conviction of a youth who had never injured him and whom he had never seen before coolly took up a newspaper and perused it with evident gratification while at a little distance from him stood the individual whom he had so zealously and earnestly sought to render miserable for life how strange how horribly depraved and vitiated might be that state of society in which hundreds of talented men are constantly employed with large recompense in procuring the condemnation of their fellow-creatures to the scaffold the hulks or eternal banishment and what an idea must we entertain of our vaunted condition of consummate civilization when we behold these learned men calling to their aid every miserable chicanery every artificial technicality and every possible exaggeration to pursue the accused prisoner either to the platform of the gibbet to loathsome dungeons or to the horrors of norfolk island does society avenge or does it merely make examples of the wicked to warn others from sin if the inquirer who asks himself or us these questions would only attend the central criminal court he would hear the banister for the prosecution imploring coaxing and commanding the jury to return such a verdict as will either condemn a human being to the scaffold or separate him forever from home wife children kindred and friends he would find men straining every nerve availing themselves of every miserable legal quirk and quibble torturing their imaginations to find arguments calling subtlety and mystification to their aid shamefully exaggerating trivial incidents into important facts dealing in misrepresentation and false deduction substituting and dovetailing facts to suit their purposes omitting others which tell against their own case almost falling upon their knees to the jury and staking their very reputation on the results and all these dishonorable, disgraceful, vile, and inhuman means and efforts exerted and called into action for the sake of sending a fellow-creature to the scaffold or separating him forever from the family that is dependent on him and that will starve without him. Oh, God, is it possible that man can have been made for such sad purposes? Is it possible that the being whom thou hast created after thine own image should be so demon-like in heart? oh if the prisoner standing in the dock had inflicted some terrible injury upon the honour or the family of the barrister who holds a brief against him then were it easy to comprehend that profound anxiety on the part of this barrister to send the trembling criminal to the gallows but no that barrister has no revenge to gratify no hatred to assuage no malignity to appease he toils to take away that man's life with all his strength with all his talent and with all his energy because he has received gold to do his best to obtain a conviction ah what a hideous traffic in flesh and blood and if any one were to say to that barrister thou art a bloodthirsty and merciless wretch he would answer coolly and confidently no on the other hand i subscribe to philanthropic institutions the jury returned, and the feeling uppermost in their minds was satisfaction at the prospect of being so speedily dismissed to their respective homes, where they would pursue their efforts after wealth, and speedily forget the youth whom they had condemned to punishment, and whose prospects they had blasted, for their verdict was guilty. And the judges hastened to terminate the proceedings. Richard was commanded to rise, and receive the sentence of the court, he obeyed with a kind of mechanical precision 
for his mental energies were entirely prostrated. The voice of the judge addressing him rang like the chimes of distant bells in his ears. The numerous persons whom he beheld around appeared to be all moving and agitating like an immense crowd assembled to witness an execution. He stood up as he was commanded, and the judge proceeded to pass sentence upon him. He said that the court took his youth into consideration, and that there were circumstances which would render a very lenient sentence satisfactory to that society which had been outraged. The court accordingly condemned him to two years' imprisonment in the Giltspur Street Compter, without hard labor. "'That's all,' said the spectators to each other, and they appeared disappointed. The audience then separated." End of chapter 32 Recording by Rosie